0: he's not in the band he's new at your school rugby captain always trapped in between dickheads and tools it's lunchtime and you're lonely sandwich clutched to your chest you'll eat it in the library because all your friends are books
1: welcome to not in print a currency press podcast where we talk to playwrights and theater makers about their ideas their work and their inspiration I'm Caitlin Doyle Markwick, and in this episode, I spoke to Eve Blake. Eve is a playwright, screenwriter, and composer, and the creator of the hit musical Fangirls, which premiered at Belvoir Street Theatre in 2019 and has since won a series of awards, including the Augie Award for Music Theatre and the Sydney Theatre Award for Best Mainstage Musical. The song you just heard is a track from Fangirls performed by some of the original 2019 cast.
0: He asks for a minute. He gets the rest of your day and he tells you what he's been dying to say
2: he tells you
1: so eve first question very important were you yourself ever a fangirl
2: Oh my gosh, was I ever a fangirl? I love this question because I get asked it frequently. But honestly, no, as a teenager, I think that I had a bit of internal judgment of like, oh, I don't want to be like pathetically obsessed with something. So I was sort of like... I I kind of, I chose indifference as a way of kind of like protecting myself because if I don't care about everything and if everything else sucks, then like, then if everything else is weird, then I'm not weird, you know? So, uh, no, but so, and it's also, I think why as an adult, I became so fascinated by fangirls and fascinated by, um, initially these teenage girls I discovered who were just so unafraid to uh, express their love for things. I was, totally intrigued by it. I guess there's almost that sort of the
1: two archetypes or stereotypes of teenage girls. There's the fangirls and then there's the girls that reject the fangirls or, you know, like a mark themselves apart by not being fangirls.
2: I agree. Someone once said to me, you know, a lot of teenagers choose apathy as a survival choice. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think I said it before, but like if, if everything else is weird that I'm not weird, I, I teach teenagers drama sometimes and I do see that a lot. But like, I mean, also having said that I was an outrageous drama kid and in like in the safety of close circles, I was deeply into musicals and like um, classic plays and like I was constantly reading stuff, but I I definitely didn't have like merch for any of my favorite bands. Like I think to me that might have seemed too vulnerable to like outwardly say, I love this thing. Um, maybe because I felt like then I would seem too girly, which is some interesting, like, internalized misogyny. But, yeah.
1: I can admit to some fan fangildom myself.
2: Oh, yeah? What was it for you? Well, this is, like, pre-teenage years. Um,
1: it was, it was really the Spice Girls for me, though.
2: Oh, that's a great choice, though.
1: Yeah, more girl bands and boy bands, to be honest, until a bit later when it was Blink-182, very briefly. I was very enthusiastic about Ginger Spice, Anyway, enough about my fangirldom. On the figure of the fangirl, and I guess teenage girls in general there, you know, you've said elsewhere they're often objects of derision, you know, particularly when they're enthusiastic about basically anything. And the way they express themselves in particular is considered uncouth or quote-unquote hysterical. So how did you kind of approach this in, in writing the musical? Because I think you, you know, you managed to capture the the undeniable humor of teenage girls and the way they express themselves, which I I often find very funny personally because of that enthusiasm and their (laughs) use of hyperbole constantly. You know, everything is um, literally dead, that kind of thing.
2: Right. Everything is life or death stakes. It's fabulous. Which
1: is often just hilarious. But how did you do this without falling into judging them yourself or letting the audience judge them?
2: I think that's the question, right? I, be, I mean, I became interested in fangirls because as an adult, I discovered this 13-year-old girl who said she loved Harry Styles so much she would slit someone's throat to be with him. And I was intrigued. I was like, that's immediately hilarious and disturbing. And that's sort of what I always seek in something to write about. So, you know, the, the you raise an interesting question. Like, how does one write a show about fangirls that is not simply making fun of them and not simply defending them, Um, and and that was the challenge that I guess attracted me to the project. Like I always say my goal was to make the audience Laugh at these girls, only to cry with them. And a, a few times, I've described the design of the show as like a Trojan horse. So my hope is that with the dialogue and these girls talking in these life or death terms, if you're like a seven-year-old dude, you come and you go, "This is outrageous! Like this is silly and meaningless." And then quickly, as you as you continue to watch the show, you begin to see kind of like all the challenges these girls are up against, and all the way the all the ways that they are derided and minimized, and um, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is that that challenge is exactly why I wanted to write this show.
0: When this world is messy and cruel, I build one that's better. I go there with you where we can be anyone we want to be feels more real than reality. Don't care if it's a daydream, baby, it feels so true.
1: I've heard a few reports from people who've seen fangirls that about halfway through the show, all the middle-aged men in the audience who might not think to be enthusiastic about fangirls particularly, start to get right into it and sort of dance along with everyone else, which is pretty cool.
2: Yeah, we did have this really fun thing. I've said this a few times, but like, because I was in the original production, I got this incredible privilege of having written a show and getting to actually watch The audience like straight on and watch their faces and what I observed is at the start of the show we would have all of these subscribers who often would be boomers um like would be of a certain demographic and then you would have like pockets of excited teenagers who were like whispering and chatting amongst themselves and you could tell at the start that these were two separate camps but then usually by about halfway some there's this moment in the show where there's kind of like this fake pop concert on stage and at that point everyone was screaming and I sort of noticed that after that point you couldn't really tell where the teenagers were sitting because it was just like, it was like they infected the, the room with their energy. So yeah, that was like an unexpected dope thing that happened.
1: Yeah, that that infectiousness is a is, I think, yeah, one of the most charming traits of all those all those characters. Like the, the infectiousness of their, of their enthusiasm and and joy that like even the most sort of calm people or people who want to like stay immune to it can't help but get caught up in it.
0: Stuck in the bunker Ever since the attack When your mom left to get food She became a zombie snack So now your only family Is a British boy His hair is like summer His eyes are like the truce. Just friends but there is something more Between you that you can't ignore Are you long lost
1: twins? No. Girls are sort of aware on some level, though, that the world is judging them, right? And like one of them even explicitly talks about the kind of sexist double standards that exist between teenage girls and teenage boys and how they're expected to behave. You know, there's often more leniency and less judgment towards boys, I guess. And there's a line that I've underlined here that feels to me like a bit of a catch cry for the play that goes, tease us and hate us, but don't underestimate us which seems to kind of encapsulate both the awareness that they're being judged, but also some sense of power or defiance. So how important was it to you that they were aware and not clueless about the fact that they're often being judged?
2: Well, I think what you raised is so interesting, right? Because when I first began researching fangirls, I mean, and I openly admit this, I had a really naive perspective about how aware they were of the structures around them. So my perspective, my assumption, sorry, was that it like, by researching One Direction Fangirls, I was gonna discover a group of largely heterosexual cis girls who naively were being like exploited to buy merch and like, vi- like um, w- compete with each other for the attention of a male pop star but the more I dove in the more I was like no these girls are woke like I discovered this whole faction of the One Direction fandom called Larry Shippers who believe that t- that two members of the band Harry and Louis are in like a, a clandestine um like, or like a secret gay relationship that the record label is trying to cover up. And so they did all of these actions of protest to try to get the record label to just let them be as one. And it was so interesting. There's this, this podcast, Reply All, that comments on it. And there's this line where the host is like, it's so interesting because The record label is trying to sell these girls boyfriends and they're like no we don't want boyfriends we want to believe that you are evil and you are keeping from us the greatest love story of our time so I guess what I'm trying to say is like the more I researched Fangirls, the more I was like no there is awareness there is feminism here and it's more than what you think it is and to think to assume that all fangirls are simply kind of unknowing victims uh is to kind of uh deny them of some agency and to to, yeah to underestimate them effectively and i wanted the show to acknowledge that and to stare the audience in the face and be like we know what you think we are and we're actually really smart so grow up it might
1: be a question of the current generation of young people too right Like, I don't think you can look at the last couple of years with things like the school climate strikes around the world and think that teenagers are just clueless or just absorb things rather than having their own ideas or opinions.
2: No, Gen Z are so powerful. It shakes me.
1: There's also, like, a lot of hypocrisy there around this this judgment because, you know, basically anything that teenage girls like as a collective is thrown into the tacky basket. But there's also, you know, these entire, like, marketing machine behind boy bands and the like that aim specifically at teenage girls and then people are surprised when they become obsessed with said band the same hypocrisy stands i guess for you know the expectations that are placed on girls to always look attractive and to to value to value that but there's a kind of do it quietly without a fuss kind of kind of response from the world around them
2: yeah i agree there's a lot of double standards and it's really like you can't win so and that was a massive goal of the show too is like Um, you know, as much as this show defends fangirls, it's not uncritical of like the way that um, girls are just like (laughs) constantly flogged things to buy and just like press ganged into constantly consuming things because they're not good enough. And uh, a, a huge theme of the show is like what it's like to be a, like a young woman in your body and to try and figure that out there's a moment in the show a song called Disgusting which is all these girls just singing about their bodies and trying to figure out like just trying to figure out if they're ever actually going to feel what is the line like I, I'm tired of not knowing if this skin suit will ever feel like home and and like for me that's what being a teenage girl was so I guess another reason I wanted to write this show is I, I, I've I sort of never not been obsessed with that moment of my life like I I'm still not over it. I think like teenage girls continue to be my muse because there were so many unanswered questions from my youth. And so that's another reason I wanted to write this show. I wanted to kind of represent like the, the raw honesty of what it feels like to be a teenager, a teenage girl, because I like when I was a teenager, I was watching the OC and I was watching like a bunch of 30 year old, hot 30 year olds have problems I could not relate to because they all had perfect skin. And I was like, What? This is not it. Teenagers, teenage girls are smelly and feral. And like, where's that? Where's that depiction?
1: Totally. And I think there's probably a part of us all in adulthood where there's just a teenager kind of frozen inside of us. Like reading those lines just reminded me of how it feels to be a 14 year old who's just like squirming in their own skin because they just don't know how to be comfortable in themselves.
2: Perfect word. Squirming is a
1: great word. So as well as the girls in the play, there's also a central character and fan who's queer. Can you speak a little to where queer or non-binary young people kind of sit in the world of fandom?
2: oh my gosh, yes. So when I started researching fangirls, like I said, I thought it was going to be this super hetero space and it was going to largely be like tiny little girls who had no idea what was going on. And then quickly, one of the first things I came across in my research was this whole movement of the One Direction fandom called Rainbow Direction. And it's just queer fans for queer fans. And like the things that this group would do, I always talk about this, but they organized this amazing thing at uh, one of the concerts in Boston. So imagine like a, a stage. Stadium concert of One Direction and somehow they coordinated fans in every seating bank to show during one song on their phone like a colored tile so imagine some people have got red phone screens some people have got orange yellow but they coordinated it to make like a perfect rainbow flag so imagine each section is a different color of the rainbow and there are photos of it and it's like this enormous like huge art project that was organized by some queer fans online who wanted to create a rainbow flag in the middle of the concert as a symbol to queer fans that this is a safe space where they're welcome um anyway so finding stuff like that i was like whoa this is so much more than like this oppressed hetero space this is a space of community that has so many um community members that you wouldn't necessarily Assumer there, and it was also really interesting, like going on forums and looking at tweets and and speaking to, uh, in particular, a, ta- a queer Taylor Swift fan who was really frustrated that, like, in all of the for example, Taylor Swift marketing, her pronouns are, she's always writing about guys. And then I was like, Oh, what is it like to be a one direction fan or a boy band fan who like identifies as male and is frustrated because for example, like all the, they're always singing about like the girl they're in love with, or, um, I think there's a line in the show where, uh, like a male identifying fan (laughs) makes a point that um, in this, in the show, the band always serenades. Oh, they always serenade a girl at one point in the concert. And this male identifying fan makes a point that like, they never sing to boys. It's always a girl they bring on stage. I wanted to kind of, I wanted to call that out. I wanted to bring attention to that, that fans, like the show's called Fangirls, but it's not just about girls, you know?
0: You're just two boys who've never felt so alive than in each other's arms, so you better survive the zombies. Die, bitch, die!
1: A review of your play that's included in the script made some comparisons to the classical Greek play The Bacchae by Euripides, where a bunch of young women take pleasure in tearing apart cattle and men alike. Which I think just goes to show how long a thread there is in the Western literary tradition of treating groups of women with high emotions, not only with derision, but also with fear. Like that when it gets to fever pitch, it becomes almost dangerous or something.
2: I mean, I think that's such an interesting word you use, dangerous, right? Because I feel like when I first became interested in fangirls, my prior context of like what a fangirl means was probably shaped a lot by like the myths around Beatlemania. I feel like when I, like my parents were teenagers in the 60s and I feel like the stories that you hear about Beatlemania is about like these like screaming insatiable hordes who would like tear cars apart to get to the Beatles. And it's interesting that it's drawn in this, with this kind of like scary paintbrush. And, uh, separately, you know, to your point about the back eye and the long history of like deriding women, um, or painting them as being like victims to their emotions, you know, someone pointed out to me a couple of years ago, I mean, the word hormonal, how often do you hear a guy being called hormonal? It's often what we call women. And it's a way that we describe when they're, I don't know, frustrated by something, um, and it's interesting how, like, how quickly we can subtly imply that women are not in control of their brains because they are ruled by their emotions, and there is just an enormous history of that, um, that of that idea being put forward. I'm researching a project at the moment that takes place in the 1790s, and I was reading about. This pseudoscientific belief around that time of, um, that women had more excitable nerve endings. And so it made them more, um, sensitive, quite literally, like across their body. So if a woman were to behold a sunset or hold a child, she would just simply have to cry because she, uh, had, she's just more excitable in all of her nerves, but therefore she's less capable of reason. Uh, and yeah, it's like this theory of sensibility, of, of, of girls being more sensitive. Um, so yeah, this stuff is like as old as the hills. Okay, so, uh, look, I I had this story like third, fourth hand. I'm sure it's entirely like. I'm sure that it's entirely inflated. But my dad tells this story about Beatles fans believing that one or several of the band members were in a car and so they tore every part off of the car or maybe they believed that, like, a band member had been there and, and like, they just stripped a car basically because they wanted all the, the pieces of it. See, I mean, the story is so is so bitty as I tell it, but um, I remember being told that as a child, that, like, they were so ravenous. Uh, and, you know, there are stories about um, – fans like climbing into air vents to get into hotel rooms and stuff but i feel like those are the shocking stories so those are the ones that get passed on and uh you know as opposed to stories of like incredible community work or like God, K-pop stands they really have it together. I mean, they're incredible acts of like raising money for charity and altruism that's going on in K-pop standards.
1: Yeah, I mean, even like whether or not they're, they're true or entirely true, it's kind of remarkable that they've become legends in and of themselves. Right.
2: The mythology of it is what is interesting.
1: I was reminded when you were talking about the Beatles that like the teenager as a distinct category or even age is a relatively recent phenomenon and almost a kind yeah. of marketing marketing phenomenon. So it's like with fangirls it's the coming together of this weird sort of ageism and, and sexism <laughs> together. Yeah, teenagers were only like a group that was sort of like marketed to as being separate from both children and adults from the nineteen fifties on and that yeah the Beatles became the symbol of that. When this
2: So I don't play a musical instrument. I tried four and never got anywhere. And I really, when I was writing this show, had to kind of go up against this internalized concept that like, I don't know how to write music. So I began by thinking about the, the melody of how teenage girls naturally speak or like the prosody. So like how teenage girls go up at the end of every sentence. I became really interested in that and like the rhythms. Um, so, you know, I, I started by kind of doing these free writes of uh, like sort of rhyming lines about how it felt to be as a teenager. And then I would sift through and find little nuggets that felt like the most true. And I would start to say them in a rhythm that felt true and then try and sort of set that to music. And then I I compose entirely <clears throat> on my computer on a program called Ableton Live. So yeah, like I, I wish it wasn't this way, but my songwriting process has always been. If I need to write a song, which is like two. a A four pages of lyrics I'm probably going to write like 40 pages of lyrics and then start boiling it down and sifting and sifting and sifting and sifting um so yeah that's how I that's how I started to sort of put the words together for these and then with musicals like every song gets rewritten a million hundred times because it is only a puzzle piece in a, a broader narrative but that's how I started to put it together and I would also do like these little musical scribbles so similarly I would free write a bunch of music that felt like different ideas and then I take grabs of it and go like, Oh, this four bars, this is this feels like this, this can go here. It's like a big collage, you know? Wow, that's that's pretty wild to learn that
1: you don't play any musical instruments or have musical training and you've written entire an entire
2: musical. You just vibe it out, Caitlin. You just vibe it. Like if anyone's staring at a keyboard, you've got like your QWERTY keyboard. And truly the way that I composed this show is like I would sing a melody And then I just, let's say that, like, what's the melody of Nobody Loves You Like Me? Like, da, 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 da. So I'd be like, da. And then I just hit all the keys until my computer sings that note back. And I go, okay, great. That one's done. Da, da, da. And I'd like, just keep, I mean, it's like painting a house with a ear cotton tip. Like it's silly, but I got there in the end. Can you imagine this, this play sort of being staged pretty much anywhere in the world? But gosh like fangirls are everywhere and the fangirls i took inspiration from well a lot of them were online a lot of them weren't in australia uh, i know what it's like to be a teenager in australia so so i guess yeah i guess like if you see the original production you're like wow this is quite aussie but the text on the page i mean in theory all the rhymes should scan if you do it in american or a british accent so um yeah i would love <clears throat> i would love to see productions of fangirls overseas that would be a complete dream and what's really what's really fun is that you've got this chorus of fangirls who are around the world and it centers on this main fangirl Edna but all that the play suggests the musical suggests is that all of the other fans are not where she is so with some some accent choices I mean you can kind of like you could do an American production where all of the international fans are Aussies you know you could kind of flip it which is fun
0: there's a me I'm scared to be, there's words I never say out loud But when I'm with you, anything is
2: allowed Because you switch off the bitches, you wipe their words away Delete it, all I can feel it, I finally feel okay
0: Magnificent things are always misunderstood Who's to say you're no good with you? In
1: high school, you're often, more often than not, studying plays or texts that are about adults. And if you're an actor, then you're probably acting adult roles, like very rarely actually playing something that's demographically <laughs> related to you or studying. You know, I, I, I'm just sort of interested by the prospect of teenage girls kind of studying themselves and teenage boys as well.
2: That's my dream. And what's really exciting is we're working on uh, like a high school version of it that like high schools can license from late 2022. So, I mean, my dream is to go to a high school production of Fangirls, right? That's, then I can die a happy woman. Um, But yeah, no, if there are any teachers listening to this, teach my show. If you need learning resources, currency has them, do it.
1: Do you have plans to release the musical score alongside the play anytime soon?
2: Yeah, so we're doing piano vocal selections that are coming out. Oh, I don't know when, I think in like a month or so gosh we're recording this January 21 so pretty soon I think it's at, at first it's going to be eight songs from the show and they're piano vocal selections they also have chord markings so you can play these songs on guitar or whatever you're playing um but I'm really excited for that I'm re I'm really hopeful that like on YouTube there'll be you know some teenagers covering these songs that would be the sickest no good with
0: you. I feel- Self mending, and if it's all just pretend, then why is it the only place where I'm not pretend? It's been really fun. Thanks for talking to me today. see and cool, so when you need one that's better I'll build it for you Where you can be anyone you want to be Cause I know you do the same for me So let them call you crazy I believe in you
1: To get a copy of the Fangirl script head over to currency.com.au where you'll also find the teaching resources created by Belvoir Street Theatre to accompany the play. Thanks for listening to Not in Print. To hear our other interviews, look us up on any major podcast platform. See you next time.